Well, welcome back to the Powell Butte Christian Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. My name is Trey Hinkle. I'm the lead pastor here at Powell Butte Christian Church in beautiful central Oregon. I'm looking out of my uh, window this morning. It is a Saturday morning. Uh, the snow has dusted the butte and um, skies are fairly clear with just a few clouds. It's, it's a beautiful day. It's going to be a beautiful day. And hopefully it's a it's a beautiful day where you are as you are listening to us. Um, we're getting ready to finish up uh, in a few weeks here our study on the Gospel of Luke. And uh, I, I invite you, if you've not heard all of it, to go back. And I mean, it's been, it, it'll be almost 52 weeks, 53 weeks that we will have gone through. It truly has been the year of our Lord. And though we have interrupted it with uh, other things like uh, Christmas time and and uh, some of the uh, other uh, standalone weeks, uh, times that I could not preach. It's taken us a little bit longer than a year, maybe a year and a quarter, but uh, about fifty two, fifty three weeks, and uh, this is week forty eight. Now, last week I mentioned that the, the most unfair illegal trial that one could ever imagine took place two thousand years ago, and if you're like me, when you begin to read. What is happening at this point of the story in Luke chapter 23? When you see what's going on at this point of the story of Jesus's life and ministry, you you might think this is not fair. This really stinks. I want to read the first part, the first half, really, of Luke chapter 23 to, to show you what I mean. This is what Luke says. Then the whole company of them arose and brought Jesus before Pilate. And they began to accuse Jesus, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, Well, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that Jesus belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but Jesus made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. And then, arraying him in splendid clothing, Herod sent Jesus back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him, and neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man! Release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time, Pilate said to them, Why? 
What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people, and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Now, in the movies, we're accustomed to guys in black hats getting to what's coming to them in the end, right? The guy in the white hat, the hero, we're used to him winning. Movies typically wrap things up very nicely. Justice is served, and you feel good about the story you just watched and invested two hours of your life in. But in life, it doesn't always work that way, does it? Good guys don't always win. Bad guys don't always suffer. And often there's nothing that we can do about it. And we, and we want to cry out. We want to cry out to God saying, why? By the way, that's not a, a new sentiment. Believers in the Lord have been wrestling with the problem of evil in this world for a long, long time. There is a psalm, a, a psalm that does a good job explaining the frustration that comes uh, when bad guys seem to win. Written by a man named Asaph, it's Psalm 73. Let me read to you the first part of that psalm. Asaph says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace, and violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. This psalm considers the question of why the wicked prevail. Asaph is asking, where's the justice? Because sometimes it's just not fair. And when you focus on the opposition in the events that we just read of in Luke chapter 23, you get the same sense that Asaph has here. It's hard to reconcile frustration with faith at times, just like possibly in your life right now. Maybe you're going through something that just doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair. Where is God? Where is the justice? How does Asaph reconcile his frustration with his faith? Well, you have to look a little bit further on to get a different perspective. Check out where his faith takes him in verses 16 through 19. But, Asaph says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. 
And then I discerned their end. Truly, Lord, you set them in slippery places, and you make them fall to ruin. And how they are destroyed in a moment and swept away utterly by terrors. You you see, it really is a matter of perspective. In in a TV show, we're used to things getting wrapped up in 30 minutes, right? In in a movie, things getting wrapped up in two hours. I, I think sometimes we get too used to that and we demand answers right now, justice right now. We want to see things done right, right now. But we know that that's not always realistic, is it? A more realistic perspective comes for Asaph here in Psalm 73 when he enters into the sanctuary. Did you read that? Did did, did you hear that? A more realistic perspective comes when the psalmist enters into the presence of God. For it is only in God's presence where we can let our feelings of frustration and futility melt into a deeper faith that no matter what it seems like, God really is still in control. God still has a plan. I want to talk about the cross this morning. Because without a proper perspective, you might get the wrong idea about the cross, about the crucifixion, about Jesus' death, about what's going to happen at the last part of chapter 23. You see, to some people, the, the cross represents a colossal failure. People had seen this momentum of, a, of, of Jesus as, as he ministered and preached to this massive crowd. A movement began, a movement that would inspire the people of God to rise up and maybe throw off their yoke of oppression from Rome. That was what they had wanted. And yet Jesus had failed to bring about that political utopia that they were expecting. And just like other disappointing so-called messiahs that had come before him, it seemed like Jesus had failed in his mission. To other people, like King Herod, the cross, it's a huge joke that put this upstart teacher in his place, a place to punish this bumbling fool who seemed to be all talk but no substance. Still to others, like Pilate, their perspective is that the cross was just this gross injustice. You see Pilate arguing with the people. He has done nothing to warrant the death penalty. Here's a guy who just seemed to be wanting to preach love and kindness. He has not broken any capital punishment uh, rules, right? He's not a threat to the Roman Empire. So why do you want to put him to death? That's unjust. And, And yet, even though it was unjust, Pilate decided in order to keep the peace, he'd go ahead and do what was unjust. And then there were those in the crowd who just saw the cross as the death of their own hopes. The, the, the ladies who were watching Jesus go to the cross and weeping for him. So many different perspectives of the cross, right? Failure, injustice, mockery, loss. But what if the events of Luke 23 actually meant something else? What if they were actually something different? What if there was another higher, more divine perspective, more eternal perspective that we can find That once we, like Asaph in Psalm 73, once we enter into God's presence and focus in on his perspective. You see, the the cross, I believe that is clear from Scripture, is actually a love letter from God to his creation. 
See, when I was a kid, I, I never played the cooties game. Ever since I knew what a girl was, I wanted to get married. I, I never understood why boys would run away from girls because I liked girls. I liked girls. Uh, and I liked a lot of girls. I crushed pretty hard a lot during my childhood. But none harder, it seems, than uh, between third grade and eighth grade when this girl from church, Becky Spires, just touched my heart. Uh, this crush was bad. Uh, but one day I got bold. I decided to send Becky a love letter through the mail. Now, I didn't know what to say. I, I was fifth grade, not very eloquent. But I had seen in, in our home an old poem called How Do I Love Thee? Let Me Count the Ways by Elizabeth Barrett Browning. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways I love thee to depth and the breadth and the height that my soul can reach, etc., etc., etc. Something much more lofty than a fifth grade mind, but I thought it sounded good, so I wrote it down. I put it in an envelope and I put it in the mailbox. Thank God the letter was never sent. Thank God mom saw it and intercepted it before the post worker picked it up. And it was a good thing that she did. I, I wasn't prepared to express that deeply, the, the feelings that I had. Love letters are like that, though. The good love letters convey deep thoughts and emotions, deeper than a fifth grader could understand. And so I'm glad mom picked it up, although mom did tell Becky about my crush on the day that Becky got married. Uh, thanks, mom. A little late, but thanks. Thanks anyway. You know what the cross is? It's God's love letter, a deep, deep love letter uh, conveying his deep thoughts and emotions, his love letter to the world. Now, the words are not eloquent, but they were spoken by Jesus as he hung there on the cross, and they were very powerful. Seven words that Jesus said, or seven things, seven words that he said on the cross that we want to look at this morning and the rest of our time. Three of them that are listed in Luke's gospel, and the other four are listed in the other gospel accounts. But we will look at them in the order that we believe that he said them. And essentially, these are, how does God love thee? Let me count the ways. Number one, forgiveness. I want to go back to Luke chapter 23. Two others, verse 32, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with Jesus. And when they came to the place that's called the skull, there they crucified Jesus and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. Now the first words of Jesus on the cross is a prayer. A, a surprising prayer. Father, forgive them. Now, first of all, Father, that word conveys this relationship that Jesus still knows that he has with God. No matter how severe the crisis he is in, he does not lose sight of the connection with his heavenly Father. Secondly, notice he doesn't pray for himself. One would expect a person who is experiencing excruciating pain and knowing that death was only moments away would first have thoughts for himself. But not Jesus. His concern is for these people. And not just other people, but his enemies. 
those who are opposing him, who are antagonizing him, mocking him, those who are murdering him. Now, to human thought and in our minds, these people don't deserve this kind of prayer. On the contrary, they deserve a curse, don't they? And yet Jesus prays for them nevertheless, because because that's what they needed, forgiveness. Did you know that Jesus still prays for the undeserving today? Jesus prays for those who don't even ask him to pray for them. You know, if you are still outside of the Father's kingdom, do you know that Jesus still fervently prays for you? And even if you scoff at the gospel, while you are scoffing, in his heart there is a love that is pleading for God to show you forgiveness, favor on your behalf, no matter what you have done. The second word that Jesus says on the cross, the second way that God has showed his love is the word salvation. The word salvation. Verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly. For we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. While the first word was a prayer, the second word was a promise. What's the request from this thief, this criminal, this lawbreaker? Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, according to Matthew's gospel, this criminal had first had joined in with the others in, in, in mocking Jesus. He who proclaimed to be the savior, savior of the world hardly seemed to be the savior of anything as he hung on the cross. But then, by a miracle of God's grace, this thief's heart was changed. And he realized that the man being crucified next to him was none other than the Lord of glory. And so he rebuked the other criminal who was heaping insults on him. And and then he asked Jesus for mercy. That's all. Not trying to justify himself. Not trying to defend his actions. In fact, he confessed that he had done wrong. And all he did now was ask for plain and simple mercy. Perhaps you've heard the Scottish preacher Alistair Begg on the radio. I I love listening to Alistair. Uh, Not only is he good, uh, very insightful, but I love his Scottish accent as well. But but those insights and the inspiration that Alistair brings is, is amazing. Now, he speaks of this encounter on the cross, this, this, uh, thief that uh, converses with Jesus. He imagines this conversation that takes place then after the thief dies. Because in in Alistair's sermon, he he switches the, the scene to heaven. And then he describes how this angel who meets the man at the front gates of heaven was a bit confused at the presence of this criminal in the realms of glory there. And he says, sir, we weren't expecting you. There, there doesn't be seem to be any record of your righteousness, no evidence that you had uh, subscribed to the right doctrine. Uh, there's no evidence that you knew the correct stance on the rapture or memorized any scriptures. 
We, we, we don't know how you happen to end up here in paradise based on the lack of evidence in, in your life. So why in the world do you think you deserve to be here? And then beg, says the thief, then merely said, well, the man on the middle cross said I could come. The man on the middle cross said I could come. Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. And for me, that's the most powerful thing to know because the power of the invitation that Jesus gives to this thief, the power of the invitation that he gives to you, to me, to all of us, to come to salvation is not just a, an invitation into heaven, but an invitation to be with him. Not through anything we've done, lest any man should boast, but in obedient faith, we take hold of the salvation afforded to us by Jesus' death, his life paying for our sins. The third word, how, do, how does God love thee? Let me count the ways. Number three, compassion. This one comes from the Gospel of John. In uh, John chapter 19, verses 25 through 27. Now, standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciples whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. It's really cool in, in, in my estimation that this particular word that Jesus says on the cross is directed primarily to his mama, you know, moms are put into our lives for very good reasons, a lot of which centers around the compassion that they show us, the compassion that they model for us. Because most of us learn compassion, not necessarily from our fathers, but from our moms, from their sacrifice that we see throughout our lives. I see no reason why Jesus also had not seen compassion in his mama and that he would then learn as she would model compassion during his childhood. And yet now, as he sees the chance to speak to his mom, as he hangs there on the cross, he sees, we, we can see how compassion has come full circle. In, in many scholars' view, Mary had been widowed by this time. Joseph was not around. He had passed away. And so without a husband to care for her, Mary would have had to depend on the support of her children, specifically her oldest, in, in order to survive. So can you imagine the anxiety that she might have felt in seeing her oldest son dying there, knowing that with his death, she might actually be left alone to fend for herself. But Jesus did not abandon his mama. Though he was dying, he was not going to leave her alone. He He's going to have compassion on her. You, you, you know, you, you see other people who claim to be saviors, people who will stand up for the injustices of, of humanity. And they rise up, and over the centuries they've dreamed great dreams, and they've built great empires. But something tends to happen in that process. In the process of becoming great, though they may have started out of wanting to save people, in the process of becoming great, they tend to abandon people. They, they, they tend to forget the worth of the individual. They lose sight of it. Uh, for view of their empire that they are building. But Jesus is different. 
Although all authority is given to him, he does not lose sight of the need for compassion for the individual. This is seen perfectly as he speaks of the care for his earthly mother, giving John, his beloved disciple, the the responsibility to care for his mom. The king who reigns and will uh, have authority over the universe (laughs) well, is a king who knows the need of the individual, and he cares enough to do what he can do to help. We should never, ever overlook Jesus' compassion Though he has so much other things going on in his overview, in his oversight, he still cares about you. He still cares about the individual. And he demonstrated that personal concern as he was dealing with his own pain as he reached out to his mama. How does God love thee? Number four, the word that Jesus said on the cross is anguish. Now, this one actually comes from Matthew's gospel, Chapter 27, verses 45 and 46 says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani, which is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's interesting that from the Lord of life, the creator of the universe, we hear a cry, a cry of desperation, a moan of pain, a wail of abandonment. Can you hear it? It's the same sound as we hear from the soul of an abandoned child, one sold into sex slavery. We hear that cry from a divorcee, one who has been abandoned by a spouse. We hear it in a quiet, lonely home where there are no children and never will be. We hear it in the long days and the longer nights of those who are lonely. We hear it in the cries of pain in those who have been abandoned. You know, our world is full of those cries, and maybe your world is full of those cries as well. Days that are bookended with broken hearts and empty souls. You know, that's what makes this word from the cross so impactful, because it sounds like a broken world. My God, my God, Jesus cries out. Why? Why have you forsaken me? Never have words carried so much hurt. It seems like this is more than the Savior can take. He had withstood beatings. He had remained silent at his mock trials. He watched as those that he loved would betray him and deny that they even knew him. He saw his closest friends run away. He didn't retaliate when they insulted him and mocked him. He did not scream out in anger when the nails pierced his wrists. But when sin stood in the way between he and his father, that was more than he could handle. Why did he do it? Why did he allow sin to be placed on him, to separate him from the father, so that he would feel abandoned, forsaken? Did he do it to fulfill the law? Or prophecy? Sure. But I believe there's something even deeper than that. I I think Jesus did it to more fully identify with those that he was going to stand in the gap for. As he would stand one day at the right hand of the Father, interceding for his people there in glory. He now knows what they're going through. 
I believe he did it to say, I know what sin does to a person. You know, John the Baptist, if you recall, when Jesus came down to be baptized, identified Jesus as the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. He didn't just say a word and let it, you know, and, and banish the sin of the world. No, he took it away, which meant that he had to touch sin, or even worse, that sin had to touch him. And that gave Jesus a firsthand understanding of what sin does to a person. It makes us feel like we are abandoned. And as Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I can imagine that in those words, we can see Jesus telling us that he knows. He knows. Word number five is the word suffering. Again, we go back to the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verses 27 and 28, or 28 and 29. It says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar of full of sour wine stood there, so that they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a sip branch and held it to his mouth. There is a doctrine. There is a doctrine that we subscribe to in the Christian church, and it's the doctrine of incarnation. And what the incarnation is, is it's a doctrine that teaches us that Jesus, as God, as divine, actually put on flesh and came and dwelt among his people. The experience that Jesus went through in that incarnation, leaving the glories of heaven to become like us, to live like a man, a human, obedient to the Father, that demonstrates his willingness to identify with our suffering. Because Jesus had a human body, that second person of the Godhead actually willingly took on limitations that you and I live with all the time. He did this so that he gave up all advantages. He wanted to live like us. Jesus was born through labor. Jesus cried. He had his heart broken. He got hurt. He got lonely. He got tired. He got irritated. He suffered. And guess what? He got hungry and thirsty. In the first part of Luke chapter 23, we read how when Jesus was on his way to be crucified, the the soldiers had forced a man named Simon of Cyrene to carry the cross. We read of in other accounts that that happened because Jesus was just too weak to carry it by himself. He had lost too much fluid, too much blood through the, the beatings that he had to endure. And it's in the state of absolute weakness that Jesus, there now on the cross, began to feel those effects of that whole ordeal, the dehydration, the, the loss of blood and fluid. And he said, I thirst. He identified with our suffering. The story is told of a priest named Father Damien. He became famous for his willingness to serve the lepers who had been banished to the island of Molokai in Hawaii. Father Damien chose to live in their quarantine village so that he could treat those who were suffering with the dreaded disease. For 16 years, he lived in the midst of these lepers, learning their language, treating their wounds, embracing them, preaching out loud the love of Jesus. He organized schools. He built homes. He even constructed 2,000 coffins by hand so that when these people died, they could be buried with dignity. 
Now, because of his work there, slowly the leper colony actually became a place to live rather than just a place to die. Father Damien had brought hope as he brought love. And then one day he began his sermon with the words, We lepers. We lepers. Because you see, Father Damien was now one of them. As he had worked so close with them, he had contracted himself the deadly disease. You know, Jesus became one of us. He suffered. He even thirsted. As we saw last week, Jesus suffered in order to take the cup of God's wrath upon himself. And by Jesus' death, he shielded us from the eternal separation from God that the punishment of our sins demanded. The sixth word is the word victory. Again, in the Gospel of John, chapter 19, when Jesus had received that sour wine, he said, It is finished. Three words in the English, one word in the Greek. It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished literally means paid in full. Again, three words in English, but the phrase is actually just one word in the Greek, tetelestai, a word that would be found on a bill of debt in the ancient world. In their business life, if a debt was paid in full, then they would stamp on that bill, they would write on that bill, tetelestai. The payment had been received. You are no longer under debt. Tetelestai, finished, paid in full. God had told the serpent in the Garden of Eden that the Messiah would one day crush his head. That was a a promise of full defeat. That happened here on the cross. So Jesus was not crying out, I am finished. No, he says, it is finished. And it wasn't a declaration that the pain was finished or that the torture was finished or even the separation from God was finished. No, he was saying that the fight was finished. Sin had been paid for. Man could now be made right with God. It was a shout of victory over the power of sin and death. At the cross, the wages of sin were finally paid by Jesus in full. Tetelestai. It is finished. What victory. And finally, we get to the word trust. Back to our passage in Luke chapter 23, verses 44 and 46. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, and then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Jesus gave it all. And now there's nothing else for him to give. Jesus paid it all. There was nothing else for him to pay. Now it was all left in the hands of God the Father. The plan had been for his death to wash away the sins of mankind. But now we have a cliffhanger. It's going to be a three-day cliffhanger. And the result would not be seen until Sunday morning. You see, Jesus had offered him as himself as the sacrifice. But now the question is, would the Father accept it? That's where the trust comes in. The trust comes in there for Jesus, and the trust comes there for us. The seventh word from the cross is actually a quotation from Psalm 31. 
Let me read. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me. For you are my refuge. Then listen to this. Into your hand, I commit my spirit. (laughs) You know, a small boy was turning the pages of a book that had a bunch of religious art in it. And when he came finally to the picture of the crucifixion, he stared at it for a long time. And then a tear came to his eye and he said, if God had been there, he would not have let them do this. But the fact was that God was there. This was his work of art, really, his crafted masterpiece that spoke more deeply of love than any poet could ever dream of conveying. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. Today, can you see the cross as his love letter to you? Can you, like Jesus, trust that the horror of a torture device could actually radiate with a glory that could only come from the creator of the universe? On a hill, far away, stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and the best for a world of lost sinners was slain. And so I'll cherish this old rugged cross, this perfect love letter from God until my trophies, all the things that I thought were the best things for me, the the things that best defined me, all of those trophies I lay down. And I will then cling to that old rugged cross. And then, one day as I step into eternity, leaving this place of limitation and step into the presence of God, I will exchange that old rugged cross for a crown of righteousness. I hope that this week, as you think about the cross that you don't miss the perspective that God has of that cross. You you could get sad because of the torture and the pain and the agony. You, you, You could think, oh, what a missed opportunity. Why didn't people receive Jesus more fully? But instead of being sad, as you consider the gravity of the cross, I want you to understand that The cross shows how much you are loved. Because even if you were the only person who had a sin problem, Jesus would have done this for you to bring you back to God. The cross is God's love letter to you to show you how much he loved the world, that he would give his only son so that whoever would believe in him would not have to die, would not have to perish, would not have to be eternally separated from God, but would have everlasting life the way that God designed it in the very first place. God bless you this holy week. As you prepare your heart for the resurrection, I would pray that the cross now has a different meaning to you, a meaning of hope, a meaning of love, a meaning of value. We'll see you next week.